Well, we want to talk about laboratories and the facilities, and there's a, a lot of issues here. On page 213, they're starting by talking about the location of the laboratories. And, and I'm reading this, and it says, occupants should not have to walk through the laboratory areas to exit from their office space. And if you look at the designs on two page 215, both the individual lab design and then the one below it for the open lab design, both have the offices close to where the exit doors are. And the closed office space has the doors opening almost straight to the exit, whereas with the other one, you step a little bit in and then you turn and you're out, but you don't have to walk through the whole space. In our laboratory at the Dow Chemical Company, where I was working, if you compare that with figure 9-1, those little offices were at the far end of the room, and they were uh, big glass windows along that wall. There were two offices, and they spanned the whole wall. It was probably 15, 20 feet. Maybe they were 10 feet or 9 feet, and the windows in the labs were emergency exits. We were on the first floor, and these windows, if you you could push on them, and you broke the seal, and you could step out and step down about a foot and a half onto the lawn. So you were directly outside. In an emergency, you wouldn't have to go through the lab. However, if it was not an emergency, when you came out, you had to walk around the center bench and then leave and go down the hallway in either direction to exit. So by this standard, that would not really have been ideal. Do you have offices that are located inside your labs? Actually, uh, right here at Kaos uh, is not the is not the case. But uh, in the the past, in a previous organization, um, I I had this uh, this uh, thing. But this is um, uh, let's say common sense, not only from uh, from the safety point of view, but also um, thinking about cleanliness. So I, I'm I'm a clean room guy here. So uh, in the, um, the standard, the specific standard for clean rooms uh, is specifically um, uh, said that the cleanest area should be the farthest from the from the main entrance. So apart from safety, we have the the, the cleanliness uh, requirement. Yes. So we, we are we are good here at Kaos. At least my lab. Well, that's good. That's a good thing. I have one lab where uh, I um, that lab uh, used to have two uh, two let's say one main entrance and the back uh, back door and uh, I left that uh, that door only for emergency exit because people used to uh, walk in using that uh, that door and uh, was against this cleanliness uh, thing. So we are good now. Good. We are good. When I was I was in graduate school, our laboratory was a shared lab. Um, like being described on page 214. And one day I came into the lab on a Saturday to check some things. And I noticed that there was glass on one of the benches where my colleague worked. And then I noticed that there was a small crater in the bench, a hole. And I noticed when I looked down to the far end of the bench towards the wall, that there was an Erlenmeyer flask that had a bullet hole in it. And then oh. I turned the 
other way and I looked at my desk and I could see that my desk was covered with pieces of glass. So I turned around 180 degrees and looked at the center bench in the lab and it had glass on it. And one of our graduate students who works in that lab, um, she had had an explosion synthesizing something. And this talks about appropriate use of personal protective equipment in shared spaces. Now, I always wore glasses, but they weren't safety glasses and I didn't have side shields. Um, and if I had been sitting at my desk and that bullet had gone the other way instead of into that Erlenmeyer, this could have gone straight into an eye if I didn't have on safety, which I didn't. I didn't have on safety glasses with side shields. So yeah, we do need to make sure that everybody in shared spaces is taking adequate precaution. We just we just got a, okay, computer does not have a microphone. I will text you. Okay, Ying. Uh, I, I saw your message now. I got the chat box back open. Good afternoon. That'll be good. Just put a, anything in here uh, that you'd like to, to chat about. Good. And so the person was badly injured in that incident, and she was hospitalized and out of work for, I think, three weeks while she was healing. Fortunately, she did have on eye protection, but her lip was badly cut, and they needed to suture it without anesthesia to make sure everything would line up properly. We were on the third floor of the building. People who were in the basement could hear the explosion, and they thought a bomb had gone off. Not good. Let's see. How many different, they start talking about um, safety showers and eyewash fountains here. How many different types of activation mechanisms on safety showers can you identify? How many different kinds of activation mechanisms can we think of? Okay, well, you, you reach up and you grab something, but how it works varies. And what happens when you decide to pull and when you decide to turn it off varies significantly in four or five different types of activations. Which one, Aria, would you say is the most common at Koust? Pull and it's on. And then what happens? What happens when you want to turn it off? What do you do? Push. Okay. One type is pull and it's on and it's got a solid rod, usually with a triangle at the end, and you push it up and it's off. Off. Okay. okay. Now, that's, that's one. One. Yes, I, I think you're describing feedback here. I think you are describing a, an eyewash fountain that's out of the wall. Sometimes the lever for the shower is on the wall, and you pull that lever down to turn on the shower, and you push the lever back up to turn it off. But what about up here? And can you think of anything else? A graduate student, are you familiar with any others? Can you type in a description of 
something, regarding the emergency shower, I have a major The sound is breaking up very badly. No, 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 it's about, it's about, so you, I can't understand what you're saying. You have that emergency shower, but most of the lights don't, are not heated with a drink. It's very difficult to understand what you're saying. There is something that's not good with the sound. Okay, let me... Uh, I don't about, know if you have a headset with a microphone, but that might help. What about now? Better. It's better. So, uh, uh, I have a, a, a major issue here at Kaos because uh, uh, the labs are not fitted with the drain. Yes. And uh, I have the, the clean room at level zero. And above the, uh, the, the clean room, there are four other floors with the labs. So, any of the, the lab, if an incident would happen and you have to run the water for 15 minutes as the standard said that means the clean room downstairs will be flooded yes that is that is um, one issue i cannot solve yes that's a that's a big that's a big challenge to try to figure out what to do that i have been in places where there are drains and those drains run into a large holding tank so that they can monitor what's in the tank before deciding whether the contents needs to be disposed of as hazardous waste or flushed down the drain. Yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not the case here. Yeah, that was in Germany and in the Technical High Technisches Hochschule in Mannheim, Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. The second type of valve is one that you give it a pull and it runs to deliver 20 or 30 gallons of water and it automatically stops. And then you have to pull it again to yeah. get the second. Okay. That's number two. Number three, you have to pull it and hold it to keep it on because if you let go, it springs back up and it's off. And this is probably the worst because it's hard to take your clothes off with one hand. So that's not so good. And then there's another one that has two chains. Instead of having a solid piece coming down, each side of this seesaw up there has a chain on it. And you pull one chain to turn it on, and you pull the other chain to turn it off. However, when it's in the off position, it's the off chain that hangs lower. When you pull the on chain, they go like this. And a graduate student died in a German university, I think the University of Heidelberg, when he went to turn on the shower, and he pulled the wrong chain. He pulled the lower one, which was the off and there's just a small little tag on there that says in German off and on. In hindsight you can say well you know we really don't want the other chain we don't want any confusion so but that's that's four I think there's a fifth kind but I don't recall I don't recall what it is the other issue for your facilities is the shutoff the secondary shutoff for your safety shower and that is if that value that you pull to turn it on fails and it won't turn off and water just keeps coming, where are you going to have to go to turn off all of those safety showers? And most people aren't sure 
100% where it is. So as an action idea for today, I'd like to suggest that you and Ying go back to your laboratories and identify the location of the next closest valve to turn off the water for each of your safety showers and eyewash fountains. And when you've done that, make up a card with directions on where it is and laminate it to make it waterproof and pin it up on the wall behind the eyewash fountain and safety shower so everybody knows where to go in an emergency to turn off that water. And you'll have less in the clean room if they can do that. This is a very good idea. Thank you. At Cornell University, when they renovated one of their buildings, what they did was they had the contractor add a little tag on that pull handle that said where the shutoff was. Sometimes it's right up there and it's a ball valve that you can turn. And if you have that, you you may want to secure it in the open position with a, with a, a tie, a plastic tie that has to just be cut so you can do that so it doesn't accidentally get in the off position. I've been in too many laboratories where the safety showers were shut off and people were not aware of that. Okay, there is, um, there's guidance for safety showers and they talk about evaporation if you do have drains. They were talking about some of the reasons why people are reluctant to have a drain. I'm in favor of drains. They're reluctant because if the drain goes dry, the U-trap gets empty and it's dried out, and then the odors from the sewer can back up into the lab. And we actually had that happen here in our home, not in a safety shower, but in the drain under our washer dryer. That had There was a drain under there and it got dry and we just had to pour some water in. And one of the things that we did at Dow was every week, uh, one of the maintenance people would go around, uh, no, once a month, and he would test all the safety showers and he would pour the water from the test down the drain to keep the drains full of water so they didn't go dry. One of the consequences of not knowing how to shut off the water system became painfully and expensively obvious in, in a fire that happened at the University of California in San Diego. They had a small fire in a lab and they had a sprinkler system in the room and the sprinkler system put the fire out almost immediately, but they couldn't figure out how to turn off the water. And so the damage in the room was only, um, I think, twenty about $20,000, but most of it was water damage because they didn't know where to go to turn off the water properly. So you really want to know where to go to shut it down. There's a picture on page 218 of a shower eyewash combination system. Um, do you see anything there that would give you cause for concern? If you can see this, and it has the lever there that you pull to turn it on and you push it to turn it off, like you were describing. 
Jane Horgay. So, but there's one thing there that I noticed that I have a concern about. Do you see anything in that picture? Ying, can you see that picture on 218? Anything there that gives you a cause for concern? Where is the drain for the eyewash fountain? Where does the eyewash fountain empty? I, I don't have that, uh, that picture in front of me. Uh, okay. So. Well, there is, in many of these, there's a piece of metal that goes all the way up to the top and the water comes in somewhere and it goes along and it comes out of the shower here and it also comes out of the eyewash at, you know, waist height and the pipe goes back down into this big pipe and you'll see that the opening for the water to come out is about six inches above the floor pointing directly at the wall, making it very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to catch the water. I've seen people disconnect that drain and run it straight down so it goes into a bucket and you can catch all the water in a fairly large pail there and then pour it in the sink. And if you're actually using the eyewash, uh, you have a second bucket handy and you throw that one underneath and pull the first one away and you capture all the water and it makes it really easy to activate and test without having water all over the place. My other favorite way of, of dealing with this is not to have that piece of pipe pointing to the wall, but turned 90 degrees so it's pointing sideways parallel to the wall, and then come out of there and go up about a foot or so, go over and down into a bucket and let it drain out over here into a bucket if you want to use that threaded pipe and do it with pipe instead of going straight down out of the bottom. And that lets you have it a bucket further to the back. They're also talking about the American with Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, so that people with handicaps in wheelchairs uh, have access to facilities. And the American Chemical Society has a publication called Teaching Chemistry to Students for Teaching Chemistry to Students with Disabilities, a manual for high schools, colleges, and graduate programs. And it's free. You can probably download it online uh, for free. Uh, I don't know if it's been updated since 2001. Do you have some students at KAUST that are in wheelchairs? Uh, no, we don't have. And uh, anyway, uh, the, the standard for clean room will prevent, uh, uh, will prevent these people to, to uh, go inside, mainly for security reasons, but also uh, gowning procedure. Right. This would be very. This would be very difficult there. But there may be other labs where it might be possible. Yang, where yeah. you are, are there any folks with disabilities that you need to make accommodation for? Um, I know. I know even a professor here is in a wheelchair. But I. I don't. I don't have any details about the uh, yeah. some uh, special arrangements, some uh, special facilities in the lab for, for this. Okay. I'm not aware of this. Probably I, I could uh, raise uh, with the HSE department also this issue to, for them to, to keep it in mind. Yes. Yeah. How do we make this more welcoming for people with disabilities? Yes. I was approached by a school superintendent and the school was in a hospital and they had just 
hired a new chemistry teacher to teach high school chemistry to five students. Three of the students were in wheelchairs and two of them were on gurneys. They were being rolled in on their back to chemistry class. And I thought this is, and for a brand new, fresh out of college chemistry teacher, yikes, that's a big challenge. There's a lot of discussion in here about fume hoods and different kinds of fume hoods. What kinds and types of fume hoods do you, chemical fume hoods, do you both have at your place? Breaking up again, that the sound is What about now? Much better. Yeah, uh, we we have uh, wet benches in the in the clean room, and uh, uh, these are fitted with the fume hoods. And um, yeah, this this is the 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 main uh, the main type we have. Is it a standard hood with a constant volume motor and blower, or do you have? Does the velocity of air going in vary? as the sash comes down uh, no it's not uh, is uh, is without a, a sash because uh, it's uh, special for the clean room and the, the flow is is constant it only goes up when in case of emergency or the, if the sensor will sense something then uh, the exhaust will uh, will run full power well that's good there is a test for fume hoods that manufacturers are supposed to to do at the time of manufacture to make sure it can really capture the material that you're going to be working with in there. This is called the ANSI ASHRAE 110 test. ANSI is the American National Standards Institute, A-N-S-I, and ASHRAE is the American Society of Refrigeration Air Conditioning Engineers. A-S-H-R-A-E, 110 test, and it involves having a sulfur hexafluoride gas generator in the hood, producing, releasing gas at a rate of four liters per minute, and then checking to see if this is reaching the breathing zone of a mannequin with a detector there in the breathing zone, and it needs to be less than about a tenth of a part per million. And this test is supposed to be performed when the hood is being manufactured so that it passes, and we say, as manufactured. And then it needs to be tested again when it's installed so that it passes as installed. And the level of effectiveness that it needs to meet depends on the hazard of the materials that the users are going to be using. One of the downsides of this particular test is the one of the downsides is the um, sulfur hexafluoride is not good for the environment. It eats the ozone layer, and so this is uh, this is a bad thing. And so they're looking for new ways to do this. Good afternoon, Jim. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you here or hear you. So your mic. On. Can you put on your mic? Hi, can you hear me now? Yes, good. Okay, good. Thanks for joining us. We're poking around page 
2.22. And there's some comments here in the first column about hood location. Where you put the hood makes a big difference because the, the greater the traffic around the hood, people walking by, the more turbulence you're going to get and the more things are going to be drawn up out of the hood into the breathing zone of the researchers. So you really want them in low traffic areas. And if you're stuck with one that's in a high traffic area, then you may want to think about getting some of these stands that have these pull-out ribbons on them, like you find at airports where they make lines for people to go back and forth and back and forth to try to get up to customs and surround the hood area to some distance with this so that people have to walk around that barrier and not go by the hood where somebody is working. And then they can pull these out when they're doing their work and they can put them back when they're when they're not to avoid that kind of turbulence. One of the problems, one of the challenges of hoods that are what we call standard hoods is that as the sash comes down, the velocity of air can get very high and it can be so high, four, five, six hundred, eight hundred linear feet per minute blowing across the deck of the hood that Kleenex and Kim wipes and paper towels and filter paper and small objects can be sucked back into and head up the vent where they get stuck in the vent and they're going a little, 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 little in the vent making everybody a little bit crazy and it can cost five, six hundred dollars per hood to go in and get this stuff out before it ruins the blower. So I always thought it would be a good idea to take some plastic mesh and put it in front of that back baffle or some chicken wire with quarter inch holes or something like that to catch these things before they get sucked in there and make everybody nuts and waste your money. Now, some of the newer hoods have behind the lower baffle something to catch stuff in there. And you can't see it, but if you reach in with a glove on your hand and you feel up under there, you can actually feel something that would act as something of a barrier, porous, or air can be drawn through it, but it would stop these things from going up in there. There's a quick guide for maximizing efficiency of chemical hoods on page 223, and it speaks to a number of different things. Um, and it does mention, I think I saw it there, about the cables, the sash cables. And it did mention somewhere here inspecting them. And you really want to make sure that the integrity of the sash cables is good and that they're not getting worn out. Because uh, one of the places where I was working, I think it was in Qatar, uh, they had had five cables snap in three years. And on the last time that it happened, the researcher had his head in the hood and he heard this bong and he pulls back and the sash comes down like a guillotine, but it hit his shoulder, fortunately, and not his neck. So you really want to check regularly. Lab Conco says to check these every, at least every two years. 
just means you've got to go up there and look down inside if you can see down inside. And anytime this thing feels like it's not going up and down the way it's supposed to at the beginning, somebody needs to check and try to find out why. Some of the hoods that you have have bypass grills up above. And you can tell that because it's not just a flat, solid surface up above the hood. It's got a grill. And what happens is, is that if when a sash comes down, air, instead of having to go down through a decreasing smaller opening, can go in up here and it moderates the flow across the deck. So some people like that one. It's not any more energy efficient because you're still drawing the same amount of air into the hood. You're just minimizing the suction of stuff across the deck of the hood. Variable air volume hoods with a variety of different mechanisms help to save energy. The University of California in San Diego had a new building where the energy cost for all the fume hoods was about one and a half million dollars a year. And that was just tons of wasted money. So it's good to have uh, variable airflow. Any question about hoods, types of hoods, the baffles in hoods, the airfoils on the front of the hood, Jim? Any any questions, Jim? Nope, you pretty much covered it as best I can tell. Okay. And Jim, where do you work? Trinity College in Hartford. Oh, wow. Did I tell you I had a soccer camp there? No. Yes. Uh, one year uh, in the 70s or early 80s, my partner, Jim Kuhlman, who was the soccer coach at um, Fairfield University in uh, Fairfield, and I, we had our soccer camp there. It was called the Soccer Farm, where the finest soccer players grow. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that was something that was given to us by one of our instructors. He suggested that, and we thought that was kind of fun, so we did that. We had up to 600 children ages 8 to 18 in the summer for a week. They'd come wow. in on Sunday, and they'd leave on Saturday, and then the next group would come in, and we had a whole bunch of instructors from a part all over the world. Uh, Wendy Owen was the captain of the women's national team in England, and she was the first female soccer player that I had met who was just a soccer player. It was, it was gender neut completely gender neutral style of play and skill level and just amazing. That's cool. And I think, yeah, I played soccer at Tufts, and we had played one time against Trinity. And I remember I went out to get a ball and somebody kicked me in the thigh, and that hurt like a son of a gun. And I also made the mistake of running. I was the goalkeeper, and I also made the mistake one day of running into the goalpost there, I think. And that didn't feel so good either. That's a lot harder than running into a player. Yes, it is. Um, let's see. What else is here? Page 229. There is that curved piece of metal on the front of the hood, which is called the airfoil, although it's not labeled here. And these are the two diagrams for the uh, showing for a constant volume hood, how the velocity of the air is going to increase there. That airfoil allows air to go in and up and across the deck. And when the sash is coming down and you don't want to have anything sitting on that that would prevent the sash from coming all the way down. Let's see. 
see anything else here. Any question about fume hoods? Anybody got auxiliary air fume hoods? Are you familiar with what's called an auxiliary air fume hood? No. Auxiliary air fume hoods were popular in the 70s as an attempt to save energy because you are blowing out of the building, drawing out of the building, all kinds of dollars that you've spent to heat or cool the air in your building. And what this did, they said, instead of taking that air from the body of the lab, why don't we set up a separate duct coming straight from outside, straight down over the front of the hood and have that air come down through a grill up there and go into the hood. And they mention auxiliary air fume hoods in here. Do they? Do I see that here anywhere? I made a note about it. Um, yes, it's in the first column of page 231. The auxiliary air chemical hood was developed in the 70s primarily to reduce laboratory energy consumption. Okay. Now, the problem was if it was very hot and humid outside and colder and drier inside, the air that was coming down this pipe directly from the outside was going to have the water, the vapor, moisture in the air condense, and it would rain coming out of this grill on the back of your neck. Yeah. And if you were in an environment where it gets cold in the winter, like Hartford, Connecticut, uh, you would have really cold air coming out on the back of your neck because it'd be warmer inside. And so it could be annoying also. What kind of hoods do you have at Trinity? Uh, basically just the standard on-demand. It's continuous flow. Constant volume? Yep. But you, you turn them off when you're not using them? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And uh, ever check to see if the air balance in the labs are negative with respect to the hallway? Yep. We do that once a year. Uh, there's a company that comes in to check that completely, and it is. In fact, the whole building's negative pressure. Okay. Yes. We had that also at WPI uh, in our uh, Goddard Hall. Opening the door to try to get into the building was a challenge because you really had to pull on that door because the inside was so negative compared to outside. Yep. Yep. Any airflow monitors on your hoods? Some of them, yes. Um, they have uh, the, the gauge and it's also tied in with a uh, low flow and high flow alarm. Okay. Is it just two settings or does it vary with the sash height? Um, I don't know. Uh, there are systems. Um, a guy named Gordon Sharp had a company called, um, uh, what was it called? Gordon, Gordon Sharp. He had two companies. Um, Phoenix Control. His company was Phoenix Control and uh, it was a, a, a measuring device on the sash that measured that took into account the height of the sash and then had baffles in the ducts to trim down or a variable speed motor to change so you could adjust the amount of air going in depending okay. on the sash height. Yeah. Now there is some discussion here about ductless laboratory chemical hoods. 
columns on the bottom of page uh, 231 in the first column. It starts there and it runs over onto 232. Um, do you have at your place any ductless fume hoods? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, anything at Kaust? Um, in my lab, we have a microfluidics lab uh, also, which uh, was designed with the bioengineering uh, section, but uh, it's got such kind of uh, uh, fume hood, but uh, we, don't, we don't use it because uh, uh, we are not supposed to run uh, bio experiments in the microfluidics lab. So we leave that for bioscience. So that uh, that fume hood is, uh, is not used. Okay. And Ying, um, do you have any ductless hoods at your place? Filtered fume hoods that recirculates the air that goes into the hood back into the laboratory? Could you type a yes or no in the chat box? This type of fume hoods, um, I think people should be very careful uh, what they are doing because uh, they need to fit the proper type of filters according to what they are using inside the fume hood. When Prudent Practices was written in 2011, they shared your caution. Today, the view about this is changing significantly, and uh, you will see in the latest edition of the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA Code 45, NFPA Code 45, a much more open acceptance of filtered fume hoods. One of the organizations that I'm familiar with is Erlab. It's a French company with facilities both in Massachusetts and China, and they have proprietary filtering media that's very good for almost all laboratory chemicals. They are computer monitored to tell you who's in the hood, to tell you how high the sash height is, what the airflow is, what the life expectancy of the filters are, there are dual filter systems, so when one reaches the end of its usefulness, and that is when less than one-tenth of the, well, less than one percent of the permissible exposure limit is reached coming out, it's time to switch filter. So you never get stuff coming out that's at the level of the permissible exposure limit, which is a very nice thing. So two examples. One at Butler University in Indianapolis, where Joe Wagner is, Joanne Wagner is the lab coordinator, and they put in 29 of these units, and they use them in their organic chemistry laboratories, undergraduate organic chemistry laboratories, and they had them for five years, so 10 semesters before they needed to change the filters. Near me, where I live here in in Massachusetts at Framingham State University, they have the Hemingway Science Building, and they decided to build an annex because they needed more space, and they chose to use the filtered fume hoods, and they got 50 of them, and they used those in the laboratories, and they used ducted fume hoods in the prep rooms, so they had the best of both worlds, and just in the purchase 
purchase and installation, they saved over $300,000, and this allowed them to afford to put a sixth floor on the building because of the cost savings right up front. And they'll continue to have those cost savings, with including the cost of replacement filters, every year ever after. So it's something really to look at seriously when you're renovating. I guess one one last point for today, and that is um, some fume hoods are what are called bench-mounted hoods, and those are the traditional ones that we're all used to, and they have some cabinets underneath. And then there are, there's another type that's, and there's a picture of it in here, for a distillation hood, and that's about a foot or a foot and a half off the ground, so you can get a larger, taller still in there. I did some work at Dow using one of those. And then there is a third kind, which is all the way from the floor up to wherever. And in the past, we used to call these walk-in hoods. But in the era of folks with disabilities and some folks who who don't walk, we now call them floor-mounted hoods. It's a language distinction that's used to take into account that some people are not going to be able to walk into a floor-mounted hood. So let me look back and see if there's anything else that I wanted to share with you. One other feature of these filtered hoods is that a company, Veolia, an international hazardous waste company, uh, can come in and do the filter swap outs for you and dispose of them as hazardous waste automatically so that they're notified by the computer system when there's a need for a replacement, and then they can come in and take care of that. And including the cost of the filters, you're still going to save money. But you're right with what you said. You want to be sure that the hood is appropriate for what you're doing. And one of the things that I liked particularly about this company when I first met them was that they said they turned down 30-40% of people who would like to buy these hoods because they know it won't work for what they're doing. And I thought, boy, that smells an awful lot like integrity. I like that. So <laughs> it's good. Any other any other questions? We're about at our time limit and I don't see anything else here. We'll continue in chapter nine next time. I'm going to put my paper clip back in here. And I think what I will do is two days before we get together next time, I'm going to send out a reminder to everyone that the time and date that we're meeting just in case so that we hopefully will attract a few more participants and some additional conversation. But write to me. You've got my email address. Anytime there's a question and Ying on your action idea list, let's get you a, um, a video camera so that you can be live with us. Love to have you participating live. Any other questions before we sign off? Oh, pretty good here. The next session uh, according to my records, let's see if I can find it. I'll use my cell phone to do this and go into my calendar. And it should be two weeks from today, if, I, if I'm if i recalling correctly. Um, two weeks from today, which would be, um, when are, where are we here? We're on the 20th of August, and that would be the 3rd of September. Yes, at 1.30. 1.30. 